podcast accurate to 10 decimal places with George Mendo and the Jodcast, June Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to Jodcast. I'm George and joining me today in the studio are Fiona and Indy. Hello. Hi, Hi George. In the show this time, Indy talks to Dr. Daniel Mortlock about finding quasars with astrostatistics, and Joe Zuntz answers your astronomical questions. But first, before all that, Indy talks to Matthias Vidal in this month's Jodbite. For this month's Jodbite, I'm talking to Dr. Matthias Vidal. Hi, Matthias. Hi. To get things started off, could you maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself and, uh, and how you came to be working uh, at JBCA? I'm from Chile. I came here to do my PhD with Dr. Clive Dickinson. And now I just finished last December my, my PhD and, and now I'm a postdoc here. Cool, great. So so what, what, what did you work on during your PhD? It's a, it's a mix between cosmology and interstellar medium. It's, it's very related to the, to the CMB science. It's called CMB foregrounds. And it's a study of of the mission that is in the in the radio frequencies that we observe the CMB, that is not the CMB and it's mostly coming from our own galaxy. So, my PhD was trying to understand and characterize particular uh, synchrotron emission from from our own galaxy in polarization, and also a relatively new type of emission that was discovered a few years ago that is called anomalous microwave emission. So I'm, I'm focusing those two things. Are you continuing that work in your in your postdoc? Uh, yeah, role? yeah, and and but now I'm also part of the Planck collaboration. So okay. I'm, I'm wow, going to be great. using sort of similar analysis that I that I used for my PhD, but now with Planck data. Okay, cool. So what what instruments, what telescopes were you using during your PhD? Were you using ground-based telescopes or space or a bit of both? Yeah, a bit of both. I started as a as a member of the Quiet Collaboration, which was a CMB polarization experiment uh, okay. that was located in, in, in Chile in the Atacama Desert, the same place where cool. Alma is. All right. That, that was one part of my of my PhD. Also worked with a WMAP data satellite that was observing the CMB, and also data from an interferometer in the U.S. called Karma, okay. and that was that was used for. Anomalous microwave emission studies in some particular clouds in, in our galaxy. Yeah, it's a bit of mostly very astronomy, but yeah, a bit of everything. And so, when you say you're you're looking at at, at these other sources of of CMB emission or of radio emission, what what exactly is the goal? Are, are you trying to make a picture of these foregrounds, or is the goal then? I mean, what what are you trying to do? Yeah, that? I mean, for CMB people, for cosmologists, the foregrounds are just contamination that they want to remove. The, the the data set that WMAP and Planck and the CMB experiments provide are are most of the emission is is, is coming from this galactic emission. Most of the there is actually a small percentage that is CMB. So mm-hmm. there is a lot of information about our own galaxy that we can learn from this using these data sets. I'm using polarization data, WMAP and now Planck, to study the magnetic field in our galaxy. And there are some structures in the in the in the galaxy, like sort of filamentary structures, that are very big. One of the largest structures in the, in the entire sky, which are visible in, in in polarization at these at these frequencies. It's not really clear what what, what these things are, 
And it's because now we have these data sets that we can really measure observational properties and try to compare with models of the galaxy of magnetic field and particles, cosmic particles, like traveling in the in these field lines, which emit the radiation that we see. So, so tell me a bit more about the uh, the magnetic field of, of of our galaxy. I mean, is this something? Do all galaxies have a magnetic field, or, or how how is it structured? On a fundamental level, is 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 not very clear how how this magnetic field started from like the formation of the galaxy. But it is observed that that most galaxies, like spiral galaxies around us on Milky Way, have another component of a magnetic field, which is most of the time parallel to the to the galactic plane, and also it has a, a turbulent component, which is is because of the nature of the interstellar medium that is sort of fractal and turbulent. You have these two components in that synchrotron. Emission and in particular polarization is very useful to study this because the polarization is sort of comes from regions where you only have an order magnetic field because the component that is turbulent will vanish after like the emission from from a turbulent region will 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 not be polarized. By by using polarization, we can study the order component, which is like the large scale component of the of the magnetic field of the galaxy. It sort of gives gives rise to this polarized emission, but does it affect the other components of the galaxy? Does it affect galaxy evolution or formation? Do we know anything about this or the magnetic field itself? Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it does, but the question is to which extent. I don't know. I'm not an expert in, in galaxy evolution, but I think that that's that's one of the one of the interrogants that have been there because there must be be at least important in star formation, or because. The galactic fields in star forming region, and when you have massive stars, can be very big. So that must have a, 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 a an important contribution also in, in the galaxy. So it can it can get to really high values sometimes. So you have like what what I'm studying in particular is the diffuse component, mm-hmm. which is relatively smooth and and not very very highly magnetized. But as soon as you go to like smaller regions in, in space. Even in molecular clouds, it's expected magnetic field to be higher, just because the the regions are more dense and mm-hmm. and the the environmental field get get compressed as well. Okay, so so the fields on really large scales are just kind of not that strong and kind of smooth. But it's then when, a, yeah, you, yeah. when you zoom into sort of denser areas, there's there's yeah, more fields. But then but then it becomes turbulent, so it's like uh-huh. you can have region where it's very very high, but it's difficult to study. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think cosmic magnetism is one of the or the magnetism of the the Milky Way at least is one of the science goals of the SK as well. They're really interested in yeah, in, in yeah, that sort of stuff. I think that 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 will give us a lot of information because the the good thing about the SK is that it's observing low frequencies and and a very very broad spectrum. So so you can use a technique that is called far rotation to observe the the magnetic field along the line of sight, mm-hmm. not only the integrated component. As far as your work goes, do you, you, you're basically just sat in front of a computer most of the time and you're analyzing data. Do you get to go out to the telescopes that you've used or, yeah. or things like that? Yeah, I mean, now I've been sitting on the computer for a long time. <laughs> but I used to, I, when, when I started my PhD, I went, I went to Chile to observe with this, with a quiet uh, okay. experiment. That was very cool. I spent three weeks there. And and the place is, is is amazing. But since then, well, I now I'm using mostly space observatories. <laughs> That's <laughs> a bit I difficult cannot, to go on. So. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, and and other telescopes that now I'm, I'm, I have data. You normally you have a, an astronomer that that observes the data for you, so it's not. A bit like Alma, that now most of the time you just uh-huh. they will send you the data. It's a bit sad because going to observe is always. I guess that 
anyone that wanted to study astronomy like start with the romantic idea yeah. of, of being like in the telescope at some moment. For sure. I think that with, with time that is going to become less and less frequent. I think the telescopes are getting quite isolated as well, so it's difficult to yeah, you know, go to go yeah. there on a daily basis. I mean, you, you went to the Atacama Desert. What was it like observing up there? I mean, I guess but, you must feel far away from everything else, really. Right? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's quite extreme. I mean, the the quiet experiment was as an as an experiment, and and that means that it's not an observatory that is properly installed there. You know, it's it's like it only was observing for a few years and then it stopped. So it's right. not so the, the in terms of facilities and electricity internet connection everything is, is is very it's not optimal. One of the reasons we have to go like every day to the to the telescope itself is to just to bring the data back. To, <laughs> to, we burn the data sure. in 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 disks uh-huh. and you have to also the electricity is provided by generators there. Wow. So yeah. Be aware that, that the petrol truck comes and so it's, it's a bit more engineering with the telescope, but it's, sure. it's quite fun. I mean, it's, it's like a good adventure. Now, I guess if you work in a proper observatory like ALMA or Opticals, BLT, it's, it's, yeah. it's nothing like that. Well, we had, yeah. we had an interview with uh, Liz Guzman, uh, mm-hmm. who was well, from ALMA actually, and she was describing how it's, uh, there's a huge infrastructure so yeah. place basically to, for all of those things. So they're not as isolated as it may seem. Yeah, no, that's true. I mean, the, when I went to observe Kauai, we were using the the road that Alma built to mm-hmm. get to to the site, just because it's more secure than the other one. Sure. And then you you consider the the size of that. I mean, these guys built that road. They have like fiber optical links. Coming back to to your 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 current work, so mm-hmm. you're sort of working on the Planck data and. I mean, without getting you to spill your secrets, how does that, uh, what's the way forward for, for foreground studies? I mean, is the goal to have a sort of complete picture of, of what's going on and then, then that's it, you can move on to something else or? Yeah, in terms, in terms of CM, CMB foregrounds, the answer is, is something like that, that, that the idea is to really quantify what is CMB and what is not CMB. And that is a, it's a difficult problem just because there are, there are many components that produce radiation at those frequencies. Okay. It's not a simple task to do. At least the residuals that you have from your subtraction method are smaller, or you understand them really well. Then you can say, okay, that, that, that's that. This is foreground, that's CMB, and, and I take the CMB and I do my science. So and that's fine. But for the galactic science, there is a lot of data there that has to be interpreted. The CMB, in a way, the signal is, is relatively simple. It's, mm-hmm. it's a Gaussian field, and, and we understand it. And both the foregrounds, like the galactic emission, is very complex, and it has much more information than the CMB. So there, there is a lot of science that can be done. Can come out of that. It's, it's a cool data set, and the, the great thing is that it's going to be available like very soon for, sure. for, for the community. So. So there should be sort of a lot more insights on our galaxy from uh, definitely yeah. actually as a sort yeah, of yeah. almost an unintended offshoot of, of yeah. the CMB project. Okay, cool. Well, thanks a lot, Matthias. Thanks for talking okay. to us today, and yeah. uh, good luck with your research. Thanks. Thanks for that, Indy. Now, Indy talks to Dr. Daniel Mortlock about astrostatistics. I'm with Dr. Daniel Mortlock from Imperial College London. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Indy. How are you? Good, thanks. Thanks for being on our show. So to start things off, could you just give us in a few words what your research is about? I'm what's called an astrostatistician, which is a word that didn't exist until a few years ago, uh, which is someone who sort of straddles the world of astronomy and mathematics. And I do a lot of data analysis and trying to get the most out of the data that astronomers get from the big telescopes around the world. Okay, that's really interesting. So were you initially trained more as a mathematician or as an astronomer? Uh, No, I was trained, I did a physics degree as an undergrad because I 
in about second year ran into a wall when it came to some of the more complex mathematical topics, and so had to curtail that. And it's kind of a bit weird now that my position at Imperial is half in the mathematics department and half in the physics department, and I teach a lot of statistics, having never done a statistics course. So, so my training was all physics, and the statistics was learned on the job, as it were, actually trying to do research and solve practical problems. So I'm guessing with the advent uh, of new modern telescopes, which produce absolutely huge amounts of data, that's where the statistics really comes in useful. That's right. So one of the the key changes is that you know a hundred years ago the idea was that you'd have an astronomer, you know, maybe even looking through the eyepiece of a telescope, looking at the object they were interested in, you know, drawing pictures of it or eventually taking photographs of it. And you know, over the last few decades, there's been this change that. Now these telescopes take huge surveys of the sky where they're not looking at any one particular object. They're trying to get a representative picture of uh, some aspect of the universe, and that means that what the astronomer gets at the end, the researcher gets, is a huge database of all these objects with their positions and how bright they are and other properties. And this starts to become more like a data mining problem and less like a traditional astronomy problem. So that's why there's this, you know, huge motivation for applying statistical techniques to try and, in my case in particular, find the the rarest objects, the unusual things in these huge datasets. I was going to ask you for a sort of example of of what you can do with statistics in astronomy and why it's useful to use these techniques. So uh, one thing that I'll I'll be talking about today in my my seminar in a couple of hours at uh, at Manchester is hunting through uh, a big survey done at infrared wavelengths, so just you know longer wavelengths, redder than the, the human eye can see, uh, the sort of thing that you've seen in movies through night, night vision goggles. And what we're doing with this survey called UKIDS is, amongst other things, looking for the most distant quasars that we can see, objects that you see a very red color because of largely because of the expansion of the universe stretching out the light. These objects are very rare. In maybe a catalogue of 100 million objects, there might be 10 of the target things that we're looking for. So they're very rare. It's real sort of needle-in-a-haystack stuff. And it turns out that if you just look through the data and try and find things that have sort of the appearance of what you're looking for, you might find your 10 objects, but you're dominated by thousands and thousands of things that look red but aren't really because of the fact that the data is imperfect. So then it's a case of applying statistics to try and separate out the things that you know look like what you're looking for by coincidence versus the things that really are like that. And so that's one of the, the projects that we've been working on. Your role as an astronomer, do you usually work on data sets that have already been collected and that you know are already out there in public, or do you collaborate closely with observers um, and, and set up observations where you know that your statistical expertise is going to come in handy? Um, more the former. More it's the sort of thing where the um, these big surveys are happening, you know, the momentum behind them is already there and you know that this huge data set is going to come. Certainly I try and get involved in the data quite closely because to really understand what's going on, you've actually got to get involved. It's it's much harder to just sit there and download a huge file from some server and then get going on it because you know it's very complex. It's it's not not that simple. But in spirit, yeah, the main thing is that this data is already available and it's a case of sifting through because the night sky is a very rich place and even though maybe tens or hundreds of astronomers have looked at the data and done the science they want to do with it, there's usually more things that can be done just because of the the nature of the universe we live in. 
so you can get maybe new information or interesting insights out of data that's previously been published and, and people think, oh, well, that's we've done all we can with that and you can mm -hmm. sort of come up. Absolutely. I mean, the, an example of this, it's not, not research that I've done, but uh, one of the things that, I, that I've seen done a few times now is where people go back and look at almost the oldest astronomy data we have where people were using glass plates to take images from telescopes maybe a hundred years ago. Wow. And obviously they couldn't see the faint things that you see with the, the Hubble or anything like that. But So you're only looking at the brightest stars. But it turns out that this is really important because the brightest stars are sufficiently close to Earth that they actually move across the sky very slowly. And that means that, that you can try and measure that motion um, using modern telescopes, but the trouble is that in the couple of years that you might be doing a survey, they haven't gone very far. Whereas if you can find these objects in these old plates, because of the baseline, the fact you've got a century of motion in there, even though the data aren't so good, it's actually the best way to measure how they're moving. Mm. So people have been systematically going through and doing this, and you know, as a result, have discovered some exciting things. Do you have a favorite wavelength? Or do, you, do you sort of do you work more in the optical or the infrared or radio or, or any of the above as long as there's enough data? Yeah, it's really any of the above as, as long as there's enough data. Uh, it's one of the fun things about being at least in part a statistician is that you can sort of scan around and look for interesting problems, not just in any areas of astronomy, but, but more broadly as well. And so in astronomy, the fact that you know, I was using this infrared data to look for these distant quasars was a case of, I suppose, form follows function. It's, you know, this was the wavelength where we'd see these objects distinguished from other astronomical sources. And so that's why I worked with that data. The actual wavelength at which the data comes in is, it's almost an, an irrelevance in terms of the, the analysis, or it can often be. And what are some new problems or areas that are facing astronomy and astrophysics that could possibly be um, solved using a statistical approach more than uh, the standard astronomy techniques? Uh, so, well, there's a couple of things like this. And, uh, you know, an example that I think is really exciting is a new telescope that's not yet been built but will be by the U.S. called the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope, or LSST, as, as it's generically known, just the acronym. It will be one of the larger telescopes in the world with a, an 8-meter mirror, but unlike the other big telescopes like that which are used for making very detailed ob observations of particular objects, this one will be equipped with the optics such that it can do big surveys of the sky for looking at much fainter sources than the current survey telescopes do. And then not just that, it won't just make surveys of the sky that are, are very deep, it'll also do this repeatedly so that you get a sort of dynamical picture of the sky and you see variable stars and supernovae and moving objects and things like this. And so in terms of the data it'll produce, it'll reveal all sorts of things that we haven't seen before but only if we can actually process this data sensibly because the volumes will be sort of orders of magnitude, factors of 100 or 1,000 bigger than any current surveys, and it's pretty clear that the current techniques for analysing this data won't work, that we'll need to supplement this with techniques from machine learning and computer science and, and, and statistics as well. So, mm -hmm. so this project, I think, um, is an example of the sort of thing where uh, you know, astronomy is really becoming a data science, and well, it's not my favorite buzz phrase, but it's definitely a case of big data. Actually, speaking of computers, in your day-to-day -day work, do you need to use, you know, supercomputers or very powerful computers to process all the data, or, or is it still relatively simple to the extent that you can you can process it on a, on something that's accessible to? the average person. So in terms of taking the data from the surveys that I've been working with, like uh, UKIDS and the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, the SDSS, another survey I use, 
the people who run these surveys and take the data and produce the catalogues, they do that using large computers, and that's a very sort of serious endeavor. But in terms of what I myself do, in terms of trying to find the objects we're looking for and so forth, I think it's true that I've done almost all, or maybe even all of that, on my four-year-old MacBook Pro. For me, at least, I'm not one of these people who gets into sort of big algorithms and speeding up computer programs and so forth, partly because I'm not very good at it. Whereas what does interest me is sort of new ways of looking at the data. And actually, a lot of the time, you can you know, find some techniques which don't require huge computational effort. So I imagine, you know, lots of people listening to this have got a Mac laptop or, a, you know, something similar. You know, it's nothing special in terms of computing. Okay, that's really interesting. And going back to the search for the quasars, um, so ha- how many in the end did you find? How many needles in the proverbial haystack um, showed up? So in the end, we found 14 needles in that haystack, and six or seven of those were these distant quasars that had already been seen before in other surveys, which was a good test because we wanted to make sure that we were finding the things that we knew were already in that area. Uh, but the really exciting thing was that we found uh, what was and remains, at least you know, currently of the date of this interview, uh, the most distant one of these bright quasars ever found, which was something that we were incredibly excited about. And the reason for this is that, uh, I suppose, comes back to the finite speed of light, that the more distant an object you see in the universe, the, the longer the light's been traveling from it, and you're seeing it as it was when the universe was that little bit younger. And so for this quasar, we see it as the universe was when it was about 800 million years old, which is only 5% of its current age of about 13.8 billion years. And, you know, it's only 100 million years younger than the, the previous record holder. But it turns out this is a very exciting time in the in the history of the universe. It's when all the hydrogen gas that was making galaxies and between galaxies was getting split into electrons and protons by the first generations of stars lighting up. And it turns out that these bright quasars are one of the best ways to, to see what's going on there. They act as a kind of lighthouse shining through every, everything between us and them. You know, this is, this is the sort of astronomy payoff of doing all this statistics, of finding this, uh, well, so far unique source. And there's probably only maybe a hundred sources over the whole sky that are as bright and as distant as this. Wow. So that's, you know, that's the sort of the payoff of doing all this. Oh, that's fantastic news. Well, there's a bright future ahead, excuse me, for astrophysics, I guess. <laughs> I think so, yeah. Great. Well, thanks very much for talking to us, Daniel. Absolute pleasure. Thanks again, Indy. Now it's time for things we couldn't fit in anywhere else, the odds and ends. And I'll start off with an interesting thing that even appeared on the BBC News website involving the spacecraft Gaia. So Gaia was launched in December 2013 by the European Space Agency, it is the latest telescope designed to do ultra-precise measurements to stars within our galaxy. It is basically looking at parallax, which is kind of like the slight shift in the position of individual stars across the sky as the Earth moves around the sun. As the Earth is moving in its orbit, it gets different perspectives on more distant stars, and you can use some clever trigonometry to find distances to these stars based on this shift. So the more precisely you can measure this, the larger distances you can measure within the Milky Way galaxy. And then beyond that, you can make uh, more precise measurements of the actual brightnesses of stars and even potentially uh, measure how the stars are moving in three dimensions. To do this, you need a really sensitive telescope. 
Gaia has really sensitive detectors on it. It's kind of like a 3 meter wide cylinder which is attached to a 10 meter wide sunshield to block out the light from uh, the sun which would blind the telescope otherwise. Uh, so that's a really big sunshield. What made the news is that despite this really huge sunshield, light is actually diffracting around the sunshield into the telescope optics. And so they're actually getting glare from the sun, even though they're not pointing at the sun. This is kind of analogous to if you could imagine if you have a uh, harbor on the coast with a breakwater, and you could have a really long breakwater in front of your harbor, but if you have really strong ocean waves coming towards the harbor, they will actually uh, diffract around the opening in the breakwater, and you will actually still get waves on the other side. This is uh, analogous to what's happening with light, with the Gaia satellite. It's actually very surprising, and currently... So currently, the astronomers in the Gaia project team are working on how to deal with this scattered light phenomena. They think, in the worst-case scenario, it will probably reduce the sensitivity of the telescope a little bit, but it's something that they can still compensate for. So I guess that's just the nature of these sorts of projects, is that however well you prepare for, for everything, you're always going to run into some sort of unforeseen difficulty. But uh, it seems that they're finding a way around it, so I guess, you know, no. I was going to go forward, you know. Yeah, this was, um, uh, based on my experience with uh, space observatories, this has always been something that's been encountered. Spitzer had issues with its detectors. Herschel actually lost an instrument for a few months, and they were afraid to turn it back on until they understood exactly what went wrong. Then, of course, there's always the very famous episode from 20 years ago where the Hubble Space Telescope was launched and the optics were slightly out of focus. Yeah. And uh, at least with the Hubble Space Telescope, they were able to send a mission out uh, on the space shuttle to put in corrective optics on the telescope. A lot of these other missions, they are beyond the reach of uh, manned uh, spaceflight. Uh, you just have to do the best with what you have. I wonder, hypothetically, what could be done to solve this problem for Gaia? I mean, in terms of the structure of the sun shield that they're using... Like you compared it to a breakwater. Do you think that the problem would be diminished by simply making the sunshield bigger? Or do you think there might be some kind of interesting shapes that they could make it that would make it not as not as big of a problem? Do you actually imagine that a 10-meter sunshield would be sufficient for a 3 You would think that, <laughs> uh, but, but it but, seems to be yeah. not the case. So maybe size isn't the issue here. But maybe... One of the current discussions is that there may have been some water ice or other ices that uh, froze somewhere, I guess, on the edges of the sunshield ah. after outgassing. They had ices that could form in other parts of the scientific payload, which is uh, shielded by the sunshield, and they have little heaters for the probe, which can sort of evaporate off these ices, but the sunshield doesn't have this. So it's possible that it's uh, this ice. So it could be it could be an issue of like maybe reflection rather than diffraction. Well, no, the ice the, is reflecting the... They, they, actually, they actually think it's a diffraction okay. effect. It's definitely a scattered light effect. 
there may be ways that they can point the telescope where uh, they don't encounter as much uh, scattered light. Moving on to something that is actually more down to earth. The construction for the largest uh, optical infrared telescope kicked off recently by essentially blowing a huge chunk out of a mountain in the Atacama Desert. The mountain's called Cerro Armazones, and it's in the Atacama Desert in Chile, and... People from ESO, the European Southern Observatory, detonated a whole bunch of explosives to essentially uh, flatten the top of the mountaintop, which is where they're going to put the European Extremely Large Telescope, or the EELT. It is going to be essentially the biggest uh, optical-slash-infrared telescope in the world once it's completed sometime next decade. It's going to have a primary mirror of uh, 39.3 meters in diameter and a secondary mirror of uh, 4.2 meters. And uh, so these mirrors are, are segmented. You, you you actually can't make a flawless mirror that's that's 40 meters in diameter. So they're going to be segmented, and they're also going to have adaptive optics, which means that they sort of adapt to the to the atmospheric conditions, so that you can get the best um, seeing possible. It's some of its goals. Uh, it's going to be a huge tool in uh, in exoplanet research because they're going to use it to study Earth-like exoplanets and especially possibly atmospheres of Earth-like exoplanets so that we could possibly find some form of life or a detection of organic molecules in these atmospheres. Uh, and it's also going to be looking at some of the most distant galaxies that have ever been seen in the optical and also the black hole in the center of our galaxy as well. Are they detecting the exoplanets by directly imaging them, or are they going to be looking for radial motions of the planets, or is it going to operate in a way similar to Kepler, where it's uh, they look at eclipsing, or are they going to do all three of those strategies? I'm not entirely sure. I think I think the main technique is going to be similar to Kepler, where they're going to look for variations in the light curves of, of stars, uh, which are candidates for having exoplanets. And I'm assuming that's how they're going to do it, because then they would be able to to detect sort of light coming around the planet, which would presumably pass through the atmosphere as well. And that's how you'd possibly have a spectral study of of the exoplanet itself. Well, I'm just um, recalling the last time the three of us sat down to do a Jodcast together, George and Indy and myself, and we were talking about llamas in Chile. My question is, what about the llamas on, on this mountain here that they've blasted the side off of? Um, it seems like this drastic move uh, is going to have a huge environmental impact. Yes, indeed, we must <laughs> never forget the llamas. But um, I have to say that uh, ESO has been working uh, very closely with the Chilean government, and um, I mean, having been, been out there to the Atacama as well, uh, it is quite well protected, and they, they have a lot of things in place to sort of protect this unique wildlife and ecosystem. And I'm sure that, yes, they're blowing the top off a mountain, but I think they would have made sure that nothing would be too affected by this and that they would have cleared out all of the flora and fauna. Um, bearing in mind that this is a desert, so there, were, there aren't actually too many things on the tops of mountains and deserts. That's true. So uh, no llamas were harmed in the making of this telescope then? I think it's safe to say that, yeah. Just, just one thing along those lines. So with uh, Mauna Kea in, Ho- in Hawaii, yeah. so it is like another like very dry and high-altitude environment, but it's also like the one of only two dry, high-altitude environments in Hawaii, and so you actually get, like, a specific type of insect, the wiku bug, which is only found on Mauna Kea, and it's like a bug which evolved to eat stuff that was blown upslope, like other uh, little dead insects. So, uh-huh. like, stuff that's done on Mauna Kea actually has an impact on that bug. Wow. To go back to Chile, though, Chile has lots and lots of high-altitude mountains, 
So it's very unlikely that you're going to have a species which is going to be uh, restricted to living on a single mountaintop. Mm -hmm. And so um, blowing up a single uh, mountaintop there will probably have less of an environmental impact than it would someplace like Hawaii. Okay, finally, um, my odd and end today is taken from a very interesting article that I read recently to the effect that we don't know the universal gravitational constant, uh, capital G, as well as we might like to believe. I feel like often, as scientists, certainly as an undergrad, you, you really cling to these constants, as, you know, things that are true, um, I think things G, that are known. I was going to say, I think G is one of my more favorite physical constants. Yes, I as love much G. as we can have. <laughs> yeah. that and the sigma and the Stefan Boltzmann yeah. equation and maybe the... That was pretty cool. I always like Planck's constant, to be honest. Planck's constant, maybe not so much. I don't know why. Yeah, no, I've always had a soft spot for G as well, so I think this is this is uh, why this article caught my eye. Um, so we all know it to be like 6.67 by 10 to the minus 11. Yes. Um, but those decimal places are uh, hugely controversial, it seems. So most of our measurements of G come from this experiment that was devised by Cavendish in the 1700s, uh, which involved a torsion balance and some, uh, some lead weights and he measured the faint attraction that they had to each other, and, and that, that's how we typically measure G. But, but it turns out that using that method, we, we get kind of different values every time uh, with, with certain error bars on them. But the error bars actually don't overlap with each other, so really it seems like a fairly dodgy method for determining anything, really, because... Mm-hmm. Um, you just can't say that the results are consistent. So so a group have come up with a new way of measuring it, which involves interactions between ultra-cold atoms. So what they've done is they've got some rubidium atoms. They've surrounded the rubidium atoms with a cylinder of tungsten. The rubidium atoms are attracted to the tungsten, but also feel the force of gravity. Basically, by moving the tungsten up, you can pull the rubidium atoms against gravity or by moving the tungsten down, you can accelerate them further. And so what they've done is they've kind of gotten these rubidium atoms and sort of shaken them around a little bit uh, and had them settle. And once they settle, because of quantum effects between them, they form this sort of interference pattern. Any external force that is affecting them uh, will show up as a kind of defect uh, in this interference pattern. And by comparing it to the interference pattern that you might observe um, in the absence of any gravitational effects, make an estimation as to what the value of G is. So they've managed to measure G this way with an uncertainty of 150 parts per million. Now, obviously, this experiment is hugely sensitive to outside forces, so most of their efforts go into just completely reducing that. But um, I guess they think they've probably measured it perhaps a greater degree of accuracy than Cavendish's experiment, so that's cool. It agrees with less than half of Cavendish's measurements. So Cavendish, the Cavendish experiment, you know, has measured a load of different values that aren't consistent with each other. Um, and this method is consistent with under half of those. But the fact that it is still consistent with some of them, they take to be a good thing. But I just thought this was mainly interesting because it just shows us really that we have to be humble because <laughs> we really know absolutely nothing. Yeah. <laughs> we well, just make very good guesses. <laughs> well, the other thing, too, is that, and it's, uh, I encounter this in my own science all the time, is that uh, some people say, okay, well, we think we know that already. We're going to go off and do something new. And it's uh, sometimes people just don't think about checking your answers on other things. And I think this yeah. is an excellent example of that. So, absolutely, you know, yeah. 
Yeah. People thought we knew G, but we don't. We don't really, we don't. no, no. Although, to be fair, measuring G sounds like you have to be really clever, and it also sounds really hard. Yeah. Um, very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> That's true. Um, I wouldn't know where to pick up rubidium in my uh, local uh, <laughs> supermarket myself. Well, this crowd have published a paper in Nature this year called Precision Measurement of the Newtonian Gravitational Constant Using Cold Atoms, and you can also read the article in Ars Technica, which we'll link on the website. And now, after odds and ends, here is Joe with more precise answers to your questions in Ask an Astronomer. Our first question comes from Martin Fuller, who was inspired by Stargazing Live to construct a homemade magnetometer using a Raspberry Pi and a compass. Well done, Martin. He says he's getting a periodic variation in the field strength that he measures every 24 hours and asks, is this really variation in the Earth's field, or am I picking up interference from a heating timer? There's a nice Manchester University connection to this question. The research that I've been able to find on a, a sort of dye and also a daily variation of the Earth's magnetic field was done by Arthur Schuster, who was one of the founders of physics here in Manchester. We have a building named after him in the physics department. So between 1889 and 1907, he studied this question of whether there is a daily variation of the Earth's magnetic field. And he found one. He found a magnetic field variation of 10 to the minus 4 Gauss over the course of a day, and he attributed that to ionisation in the upper atmosphere caused by the sun. Unfortunately, Martin detected something a bit bigger than that, about 100 times bigger, uh, 10 to the minus 2 Gauss. So I suspect that something else is causing what Martin's finding with his magnetometer. A few possibilities for this. There are various ones. One anecdotal one I've, I've heard today is that if you have a cat with a magnetic collar to open little cat doors, then that's possibly a cause of this. But possibly more likely is ambient temperature, is my guess. That ambient temperature is changing the physics of the detector that you're using. That would just be my guess. But it looks like what you found is not a real physical effect, I'm afraid. All right, thanks for that question, Martin, and good luck with your homemade magnetometer. Our next question is from Franco Rodriguez. He asks, Considering the conservation of energy principle, what happens to the lost energy a photon experiences when it redshifts during its long path through the cosmos? Could this be a possible dark energy source? This is a surprisingly subtle question to do with conservation of energy and relativity, and in general relativity in particular. But we can boil it down to something a bit more sort of everyday that we can understand more easily. So imagine that you, Indy, are on a train holding a tennis ball. As far as you're concerned, that tennis ball is not moving relative to you, so it's got no kinetic energy, it's got no energy. If I'm standing by the side of the train and watching it whiz past me, as far as I'm concerned, that tennis ball is moving very, very quickly and has quite a lot of kinetic energy. So we know straight away that energy is not a thing that's the same in any frame of reference. So we call them inertial frames in physics, so a frame of reference where the normal laws of physics apply. So we know this is a different quantity between two different places, so it's not a thing we should expect to be the same. And the principle of that energy being different in different frames applies just as much to photons as it does to tennis balls, except as our correspondent correctly notes, in, in, in photons that energy is to do with frequencies and wavelengths rather than just the tennis ball's direct speed. So it turns out that the frame of reference that those photons are emitted in is different from the frame of reference they are received in. And that's because as the universe expands, what is changing, or a person in one position in the universe and in a different position in the universe are in two different frames of reference. So it's not that the photons have actually lost or gained energy, it's just that the way we interpret them has changed. And I'm indebted to the website physics.stackexchange for that quite nice analogy with the train. <laughs> Great, thanks a lot. So finally, we've got a nice question from Andrew Tyzak, who asks, could it be possible for somebody aboard the ISS to lean out of a window and throw, in inverted commas, a time capsule to Mars. And this references one of our odds and ends in which we talked about a group of students who wanted to actually send a time capsule to Mars. This is a very nice question. It takes me back in time to undergraduate days and orbital dynamics and those questions, which is great fun. And also to the great fun game Kerbal Space Programme, where you get to do this kind of thing for real. 
The answer is basically no, unfortunately. Gravity means that you can't do that. There's a, two things that we need to distinguish quite carefully, and it's, it's between weightlessness and zero gravity, and those are different things. When we see astronauts on the ISS floating around, that's not because there's no gravity there. It's because they're falling, and orbiting is a kind of falling, at the same speed as the capsule they are in. So it's because they're in free fall, is why it looks like they're weightless and they're floating around. So there's not there's no gravity, so you haven't got away from the Earth's gravitational field. So to get something to Mars, you still need to add in energy. You need to add in quite a lot of energy. And we can work out how much energy that is. So there's two speeds we need to know. We need to know the speed that you'd have to throw the thing to get it to Mars. And we need to know the speed that the ISS is already moving. Because remember, the ISS is already going pretty fast. So, you know, maybe that's a, a big fraction of what we need to throw it at. The first impulse of any physicist when you have any kind of problem is to conserve energy. So how can I conserve energy in this problem? And we can do that to work out the escape speed that we need for the time capsule we're going to throw to Mars. So we say, OK, if I can figure out how fast the ISS is going now... If I throw this thing and it's just, just, just fast enough to get it away from the Earth's gravitational field into what we call infinity, although actually it will just be, you know, far enough away that it's no longer relevant, then we can do that equation. We can equate those two things. You can do that by knowing, for example, the radius that the ISS orbits at, that kind of question. So that's how we do that speed. To get the speed the ISS is actually moving at, we do a different kind of thing. We equate two different things, and that's the forces on the International Space Station, and that's the centripetal force that we need in, in a keep it where it is, and the Earth's gravitational force attracting it. And it turns out that's a very, very similar calculation to the first one. So the difference between those two things is how fast the astronaut would have to throw the ball out of the International Space Station. That's three kilometres a second. So unfortunately, unless our astronaut has a very strong arm and can throw his time capsule or her time capsule at three kilometres a second, then it won't be very easy to do. Great. Well, thanks a lot for answering our questions, Joe. Thanks a lot. Thank you for that, Joe. And now on to feedback. We haven't had that much feedback this month. It seems like a lot of people are watching the World Cup, but Fiona does have a little bit of uh, feedback for us. Uh, we have a tweet from interviewee Professor John Butterworth, uh, who was interviewed on the previous Jodcast, who mentioned that he enjoyed doing the interview with us. Uh, so thanks, John, for that. And as usual, thanks for all the retweets and follow Fridays. And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash jodcast. On YouTube at youtube.com slash jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash groups slash jodcast. And don't forget that you can send us posts. The address is on the website. All that's left to say is thanks to Dr. Daniel Mortlock and Dr. Matthias Fidel for the interviews. The editors were George Bendo, Sally Cooper, and Indy LeClerc. The producer was Sally Cooper. Until next time, John. John.